This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your girl, Jessie Mae Peluso. How are you living, learning, and loving? That has just become our beginning tag, and it's really what I work on every day. I work on trying to live better, love better, and learn a little bit more. How are my Maybays? Has this moniker, has this alias caught on? You guys are my Maybays. It's sticking for me. I hope it sticks for you. Thank you guys so much for being here. Every week you come back and listen is truly an honor for me. And I really appreciate your listenership and your continued support. If you guys feel so inspired to leave a rate or review on the Apple iTunes app for this podcast, that would be amazing. Would it be too much to ask? Go over to the app. Tell tell the world how you feel about the Sharp Tongue Podcast. And hey, maybe this holiday season, take an episode that resonated with you and send it to a friend who maybe could use a little bit of inspiration or laughter or both. Thank you guys so, so much. I really do appreciate you. And this week, we're diving back into our Grief Survival Guide mini-series. It's been a hot minute. We are at 340 some odd episodes now. And the last Grief Survival Guide episode we did was episode 325 with my friend Jay Allen, who has since gone on to wow audiences and continue to spread his word and his message through his music. And I'm so happy for him. He was on The Voice and he got chosen and the world is opening up for him. And I'm so, so happy. If you guys want to listen to that episode with my friend Jay Allen, it's episode 325, Finding Your Purpose. It's It was really an in-depth conversation. The sound on that was a little challenging because on his end, he had some connection issues. So please be patient with the sound on that episode. I truly apologize, but I believe the content far outweighs the issues, the audio issues that we had. And this episode is a grief survival guide episode with a gentleman who fell into my sphere by chance. I think just from me being in the Alzheimer's community and having been vocal about what happened with my father's vascular dementia, which is what my father was diagnosed with and died from uh, the year 2017 to 2018. Since embarking on that journey, because it was such a short year for us, you know, people with Alzheimer's and dementia alike survive on an average of five to eight years, sometimes even longer with the disease. So my sister and I, my family and I kind of felt like we got the Cliff Notes version of that disease. And I continued my education and my advocacy beyond my dad's death, posthumously, if you will. And it really propelled me into a whole community that I didn't even know existed. And after having this conversation with the guest today, I realize there's more to do and there's, there is more of a community and more resources than I ever even hoped for. And that's the interesting thing about dealing with something like Alzheimer's where you're grieving the person who's alive and having to grieve them on a daily basis. And if you are one of the unfortunate 
loved ones or caregivers of the person who's diagnosed, you are on a long, long journey that is heading to one destination, unfortunately. So the resources matter because you still need help. And for me, even though my father has been dead for a few years now, I still feel the traumatic experiences today, not as, as deep, but I still feel them like I did when we were experiencing it and going through it. And I do feel like I want resources for myself, but also to expand the community for others like myself who don't realize that there are ways to cope and that there are relief. There's relief and there are programs that can provide relief and community. That's the beautiful thing. And so I found this gentleman because of all of that, because of my involvement with it and my continued desire to educate myself and to further uh, the conversation on my platform. That's essentially one of, I guess, a purpose that I discovered on the other side of experiencing that with my father is having such a huge platform, excuse me, is a responsibility, but it's also an opportunity to share an experience that a lot of people are dealing with and enter our guest today. Our guest today is former Wisconsin governor, um, Mr. Marty Schreiber. He has written a book about his experience with his wife who has Alzheimer's and his experience being a caregiver. He shares this honest and practical and heartfelt wisdom to help Alzheimer's caregivers learn, cope, and survive. The title of the book is My Two Elaine's Learning, Coping, and Surviving as an Alzheimer's Caregiver. And Marty Schreiber shares his heart-wrenching 18-year experience of watching his wife, Elaine, transform into a person who no longer recognizes her husband and children. And his message for fellow caregivers is there is hope in the sorrow and and strength in knowing you are not alone. And I think that's one of the biggest issues with Alzheimer's. Like he says, it's not a chicken casserole disease. And we get into that in the episode. It can be a very lonely disease to have for the loved ones who end up becoming caregivers of the, the people in their life who become diagnosed with this terrible disease. And Schreiber's story comes at a crucial time. According to the Alzheimer's Association, more than 11 million Americans are currently caring for someone with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. That's a huge number. And it's predicted that this number will continue to rise while resources for caregivers in the families of patients remain the same and sparse. Alzheimer's, I found out with my family, is one of the most expensive diseases you can have because inevitably you will have to take care of the person. And... I promise you this episode isn't all heavy. While it is a heavy subject, we have to talk about these things. You guys know if you're fans of mine that this is a passion of mine and we love to share information and provide resources. And obviously the grief survival guide was made for that. I wanted to share my experiences with it because I know everyone deals with it on a daily basis. And with Marty, He said, what I've learned over the past decade plus will, I hope, make a difference in your life and the life of your loved ones. I've hiked up the Alzheimer's mountain and have identified its dangerous areas and meeting you now on the way back down as you begin your own climb. Please don't take another step until you hear what I have to say. And I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. I consumed this book, My Two Elaine's, in days. And it was a little triggering for me, but also I wished when I was done reading this book, my first thought was I wish I had it when I discovered and when my family discovered what was going on with my father. It really does read like a caregiver's guide. It's one part love story, one part practical advice. It includes not only insightful takeaways of what he wished he knew he knew sooner and had done differently as a caregiver for his wife. It also features excerpts from his wife's personal journal the woman who became diagnosed with Alzheimer's recounting her thoughts, her concerns and frustrations as this disease progressed. And um, there's helpful resources. There's a Q and a with the neuropsychologist, Dr. Michelle Braun. 
equipped uh, caregivers with the right questions to ask and empowering them to advocate for their loved one's needs as well as their own. So this book has a lot to offer um, alongside with his co-author, Kathy Brightenbacher. I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name. He shares his hard-earned wisdom gleaned from nearly two decades of caring for his wife. And while he also gives readers permission to feel the spectrum of their emotions, he includes a lot of humor, which is what endeared me to him beyond us having this parallel experience. He uses humor and he's very open about being a man and being a man in an era where men are men and having a difficulty asking for help. And his ultimate mission is to help caregivers and their loved ones find a way to live their best lives possible. Um, I highly recommend My Two Elaine's Learning, Coping, and Surviving as Alzheimer's Caregiver. It releases June 13th, 2022. So that means you guys can avail, you guys can purchase it. It is available. I will put the link in the show notes. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy and get so much from this conversation I had with the delightful former Wisconsin governor, Mr. Marty Schreiber. Sharp Tongue Podcast. Beep, 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 beep. You're listening to the Sharp Tongue Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse May Jessie Peluso. Mays. It's a personal look. Well, it's not really a look because it's a podcast. I'm already fucking this up. This is kind of like a verbal comedy diary. A deep look into the crevices of my mind. It's going to get dirty. You might cry. you probably laugh. Hopefully you'll laugh. The whole point is for you to laugh, but you also might cry. I talk about my family. I talk about farts. farts. I talk about love, loss, comedy, how hard it is to make it in this biz. I'm a fucking professional. Each week it's something different. Sometimes I have a guest host. Sometimes it's going to be a movie companion episode. Sometimes I just ramble about the bullshit I dealt with the week before. You never know what you're going to get. It's raw, uncut, and funny. It's me. Where are you from this? I can hear you. You can hear me? I can. Yes, I can. You sound very nice. You sound nice as well. I am so excited to have you here. I've already described you in the intro, but many know you for your service uh, to the people of Wisconsin and the state Senate, Lieutenant Governor, and ultimately the 39th Governor of Wisconsin. What a title to have. And the author of My Two Elaines, which I devoured in um, a very short amount of time, learning, coping, and surviving as an Alzheimer's caregiver. And I'm so honored to have your time here with me. I have so many questions, Marty. <laughs> First of all, um, you guys sent me a very thorough and helpful interview question packet. And I went through it and I also wrote questions based off of what I read. So I hope you can indulge me in going back and forth between what your publisher sent and what I have procured for this conversation. I would be fine. So my first question is a question I had, and it's also based off of your questionnaire from the publisher is why did you write this book? I concluded, uh, well, first of all, my wife has been diagnosed with, with Alzheimer's going back some 20 years. And um, it was an understanding that I received over the course of time that if there's one thing worse than Alzheimer's, it's ignorance of the disease. Ignorance of the disease by the medical profession, ignorance of the disease by we, the caregivers, ignorance of the disease by, by uh, churches and synagogues and parishes and so forth. And I, I realized I had messed up on so many opportunities for joy with Elaine while she was on this journey. And I had seen so many other people experiencing the frustrations of caregiving uh, that I felt I, I would just like to sit down and talk with other caregivers and say, I know you're going on this journey and I know it's going to be arduous. It's going to be very, very difficult. But before you go, just sit down and listen a little bit and let's just talk before you go on a journey. And uh, I think before you go on this journey, I think I can make it a little bit easier for you and your loved one. That is exactly what I thought when I read this book, that I wish I had had it prior to my dad's diagnosis because it is a journey that 
uncovers itself as as it goes along. And there is really no guidebook that clearly helps the process that a caregiver or people who are loved ones of the ones who are diagnosed. Um, you said something in your book, you mentioned not always coming out on top in your life. How did that prepare you or how did it inform your experience with Alzheimer's with your wife by not always coming out on top? One of the, uh, so Elaine, you know, the woman I fell in love with when I was 14 years of age or the girl I fell in love with, and then later, you know, of course, married and four children and 13 grandchildren. When I would run for political office, she would be the hard work, hardest working campaigner. And if I would lose, she would never let me feel defeated. And I think it was that that kind of, of, of inspiration she gave me about never feeling defeated, um, that that was a guiding factor, both for good, uh, but also for not so good. Because if I had determined uh, that I was not going to be defeated or let this disease defeat me, what happened was it became a battle between myself and Alzheimer's and not how can I help my wife best survive and, and best be comfortable and best have moments of joy. And so the, 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 the fact that we had ups and downs, the fact that we had challenges, but also the fact no matter what the challenge was, Elaine gave me the inspiration of knowing um, that I was never defeated. She sounded, uh, she sounds in, in her life, in her past, like an incredible human being and so intelligent and so self-motivating. Um, you know, you said that when she was diagnosed, she went out and got a bunch of books. Tell me about that. Well, as she went out and uh, with the diagnosis, and it was almost, and maybe this may be a bad analogy, but it was almost as if she she could gain redemption away from this disease by the more she read, and she was sort of hoping that she would get some kind of a further, deeper understanding that would stop the progress of this disease. And uh, so she tried to get a hold of every book and read every book, and of course that. Uh, if you read up on Alzheimer's, there is no happy ending to this disease, that's for sure. And uh, uh, so on the one hand, she read these books to try and get for her a better understanding. But at the same time, while she's reading these books, she's also keeping a diary, almost a daily diary of her experiences as she is traveling along her journey uh, as an Alzheimer's patient. And so... Um, between what she tried to understand about this disease and also what she helped me understand through her notes and and and, and diaries uh, proved to be just invaluable in, in, in helping me and I think others better have a deeper understanding of what it's like to be a person diagnosed with this disease and then continue forward. I couldn't agree more. Her diary um, excerpts are sprinkled throughout your book. And it's really interesting to have a front row conversation per se with someone who is experiencing this disease that has a one direction, as we both know. Um, and because of that, because of the levity of this disease and, and how we know basically one way or another how it's going to end, because right now we do not have a cure. I read a lot about what helped you, but I would love my listeners to hear on their own. And I encourage them to go get the book as well. And I'll be putting the link in the show notes. Um, you discussed it in your book, but what helped you cope with the revelation that your future would not go as planned? And what role did humor play in that journey for you? Well, humor, um, it, it, it takes a while for this disease to finally get into your mind to understand that you cannot fight this disease head on, that you have to change your direction. And the direction then is to help your loved one and also the caregiver live best life possible. So um, I didn't think it was funny at all for a long period of time. And uh, 
I was becoming so emotionally strung out uh, mm. in this disease. Uh, as I saw my wife uh, sort of uh, disappear. But one, one thing uh, about these diaries and notes, just to get there for a moment, mm-hmm. what the situation was, until I found her notes on her diaries, well, I want you to know we had prayed together and we had cried together. And then I found these notes and realizing as I read these notes, I finally understood the courage that it takes to be diagnosed with this disease and then continue forward. Mm-hmm. I began to understand and I sort of thought I knew it, but never did I understand the depth of concern and worry. But I also never understood how important I was in Elaine's life. And uh, uh, many times in, in her notes and diaries and we couldn't get them all in the book, but many times she said, you know, how much she depended upon me and how I have to take care of myself, Marty, uh, not only for myself, but for her too. And, and I finally began to understand what, what, what I needed to do. And one of the things I needed to do was to take care of myself because I was like a lifeline to Elaine. In other words, you read in, in, in her diaries how she's worried about what the future might be. And, and she's talking about what, what, what might happen. But then she's also looking to me. And what was I doing? Well, I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't eating right. I wasn't sleeping right. I wasn't getting enough exercise. I got involved with what I call the caregiver's poison and, and uh, had a couple of martinis every night because that was finally some relief. And then I'd have a few more martinis and that was even some more relief. And, and so what was happening then is I began to realize that the very thing that I love so much, my wife Elaine, what I wanted to do for her, I was destroying because I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't getting help. And uh, so I began to understand that I have to get help. Now, this is not what you call a chicken casserole disease. Let's assume hypothetically that I fall and break my hip. I'm laid up. Well, people bring me a chicken casserole. If I have open heart surgery, they know I can't get around. They bring me a chicken casserole. With Alzheimer's, because people are ignorant of the disease, friends I may have had for 30 years, neighbors and so forth, because they're ignorant of this disease, they do not know how to react. And because they don't know how to react, they step in the background. And because I'm not smart enough to share with them what's going on, because I'm not smart enough to ask them for their help, that whole process causes me not only to be overtired and, 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 and frustrated and discouraged and be grieving and depressed and so forth. But also what is happening is I'm beginning to feel like I'm being deserted by my friends. Oh my gosh. Well, finally, I began to understand that I've got to get help for myself so that I can be helpful to Elaine. And uh, that was one of the most important learning experiences, but another learning experience which began to to settle in not soon enough, but eventually I got there. And that is to understand that as long as I tried to keep Elaine in my world, no, Elaine, it didn't happen on a Thursday. It didn't happen on a Friday. It wasn't the Joneses. It was the Smith. The more I tried to pull her into my world, the more frustrating and, and the more discouraging and, and, and harmful it was for Elaine as well as for me. Once I began to understand that I had to let go of this person who once was, at that time then I could embrace and help this person who now is. Once I began to understand this is not my battle against Alzheimer's, this is my goal of helping my wife live her best life possible. One of the ways of doing that and joining her world, you know, is 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 to, uh, well, what I call therapeutic fibbing. Um, you know, uh, she once asked me, how are my parents? I said, Elaine, I said, they're both dead. The shock on her face when she realized that she maybe didn't say goodbye to her parents, much less attend the funeral. Well, the next time she asked me, how are my parents? I promised myself, I'm not going to put her through that agony again. So I said, Elaine, I said, your mom is doing great. She loves working at her church, and your dad likes the sports. He thinks, oh, that makes me feel so happy. Well, that's what I call therapeutic fibbing. 
therapeutic fibbing. And so there's two points on therapeutic fibbing. Number one, I tried it the first year of marriage and it didn't work so good. <laughs> but then also with therapeutic fibbing, I want people to know that if you go back to the time when Moses went to Mount Sinai to bring down the 10 tablets of the 10 commandments, I was there personally. And I saw on both of those times he went up and down, there is a footnote which says therapeutic fibbing is all right. Therapeutic fibbing is good. In fact, therapeutic fibbing may be required. And, and so I want people to understand that that's really in Moses' 10 commandments in the tablet. So they can feel that therapeutic fibbing is, is, is okay to do. But then when I, when I say join the world of the, of the person who now is, then this, this just was something of an experience. Elaine and I are having lunch at assisted living memory care. And we're having, and she begins to cry. And I says, Elaine, why are you crying? Well, she says, I'm beginning to love you more than my husband. Well, I, I didn't ask her what's wrong with your turkey husband. I didn't do that. But what that proved to me was that it was not necessary for her to know my name in order for our hearts to touch. And I want you to know that I have seen so much pain that people experience when their loved one does not know or remember the name. And I said, that's okay. They don't have to remember your name. A hug or, or holding of the hands or the singing of a song, you know, uh, what is the, the great the great author said, you know, I may not remember what you said, but I will always remember how you made me feel. And so once I began to understand this whole situation of joining her world, life became easier. And once I began to understand that I was a lifeline for my wife, Elaine, and if I was afraid lifeline, meaning that I was weak and so forth, I would throw her something that would give her security. And if she would grab onto it, it would break because I wasn't taking care of myself. Well, that's a long answer to your question. You answered about 10 questions as you were going along. I was like, got that, got that. Um, I can, it, it was, it's amazing. And I, I can totally relate. I think one of the biggest um, takeaways besides having so many takeaways from that was essentially how you make Alzheimer's your friend in a way. And you talk about therapeutic fibbing and me being a performer and entertainer, we refer to it, or I refer to it as for my own survival, playing improv with my dad. I would yes and all of his suggestions and essentially what you're saying and what I'm hearing and what I experienced is when you're dealing with Alzheimer's, it is their world as you know it. And the more you take a seat in their world, the less the, the less anguish you're going to go through for yourself. And the other thing that I've learned is to try to not take what they say personally, because Alzheimer's can be such an acerbic disease, meaning that the things they say, like her forgetting that you're her husband, even though she still has that feeling, those words can hurt. But finding a place to know that that's just the disease talking Um I do want to touch on, you made a great analogy that Alzheimer's is not a, a chicken casserole disease and that it is a disease that separates us. Um, and that's unique in that, you know, you're, you're absolutely right where if you have a physical injury, people can see your pain and see that you're hurt. But with Alzheimer's, it's all internal. So you did talk about realizing that you needed support. And I wanted to ask you, because you are what I consider a very traditional man. And I mean that with all respect, you're, you're a very traditional man and there's a dying breed these days. So it's nice to see. Um, I wanted to know how you felt as a man realizing you needed that support. And you mentioned that you realized you weren't man enough. This is actually what you said from your book. I wasn't man enough to know I needed help to deal with my wife's health problems. So how, how did you come to that realization and how did it feel to relinquish control, knowing you needed help? Uh, it was almost an intervention by my children. Um, they sat me down and they said, Dad, um, you're not taking care of yourself. You're ill. You, 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 you know, you could die before mom. 
and we don't want to lose both parents. And so it, it almost was a slap aside the head. And sometimes we men need a good slap aside the head because we just we don't like to ask for directions, so to speak. And and what 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 I finally learned uh, is is that the, it's the it's it's courage to ask for help, but also to ask for help means you're not giving up. And hypothetically speaking, you know, uh, we could be surrounded by the enemy, and uh, everything can look hopeless. But we know we can maybe get help, but to say, I'm not going to get help, well, that's giving up. But to say, I am going to get help, uh, but there's also then, okay, now I understand I, I can't do it by myself. I need help. Now, now what do I do? Um, people will say, well, let me know if I can help you. Well, I'm not, I, caregivers don't say, so, you know, um, yeah, okay, you can help me, so forth and so forth. And so, um, what what I try to advocate for for friends of caregivers and, and loved ones and say, hey, uh, you know, can I go um, pick up uh, the drugs from the pharmacy or can I loan your um, mow your lawn or can I take the car, the oil to be changed and so forth? Some specific kinds of things to to help the caregiver get some kind of of, of relief because that relief ends up being so important for the injury for the individual caregiver to reestablish their bearings. And as I uh, talk about therapeutic fibbing, uh, there is also irrational irritability. And that irrational irritability comes out in caregivers when we become overtired, when we become distraught, uh, when we become de depressed. And now all of a sudden, and, and also, as, as you may know, we caregivers watch our loved one uh, disappear a little bit every day. And we think that we finally have a way of helping our loved one. And we wake up the next morning and they've disappeared even more. So what did I do wrong? And we work harder. And now it is even becoming more discouraged, Gene, because now we feel guilty because we're not doing our job. Okay, now here's what happens. We're overtired, we're distraught, we're feeling a failure because we can't take care of our wives. So we're beginning to think that we're really turkeys. And so someone gives us the slightest indication that they think we're a turkey as well. And I think our own ego won't allow, our ego will allow us to say, well, I'm no good. But once someone else tells me that I'm no good, that's when these tempers flare up. And uh, we have to be careful of that because, um, you can say some very damaging things that hurt people. And uh, um, I've done that more than once and I regret it. And another reason for me to appreciate you and what you are doing and your show so that we can begin to help caregivers better learn to understand how they can learn, cope and survive and, and to also deal with if there's one thing worse than Alzheimer's, it's ignorance of the disease. I, I I wholeheartedly agree. the The ignorance of the disease is staggering, and I your your book really um, feels like a bible for caregiving. You mentioned in your book, um, I'm quoting you: "Caregiving is a continuous process that puts unprecedented demands on your time, energy, and emotions, and all of this is done without training, which is really alarming." I want to ask how, in your opinion, has the number six cause of death in our country alongside with caregiving, how has that come without any training in your opinion? And do you see reform on the horizon? Uh, there are some people who are beginning to understand that we've got to be doing more for caregivers, that we've got to be helping them understand this disease. And I think through the, Alzheimer's Association, and then there is also the uh, uh, different areas. For example, it's the Aging and Disability Resource Center in the Wisconsin area, but I know that there are other uh, uh, organizations like that. And then also what, what, what would be so important, I think, is if there is a diagnosis of this disease, there is an understanding that there are two patients there's the person who is ill, and then there is the caregiver. And we simply have to understand it. 
One of the reasons is, and it would seem to me that the health insurance companies would want to really latch on to this in helping caregivers because many times more than normal, the caregiver has a, a, an earlier death than they should have, uh, even an earlier death than the one and the person they're taking care of. And so uh, they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars figuring what's wrong with Marty Schreiber. Uh, before this, a generally helpful kind of guy, and now all of a sudden he's trouble breathing he's got can't go up and down stairs decently and 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 so forth and so forth well i think it was the ignorance of the disease that didn't allow us to understand that there's something going on emotionally that is causing this illness and uh, i talk a little bit in the book about cortisol uh, yes chemical you know released just before adrenaline and fight or flee and well when you're under pressure and distress, your body releases cortisol. And if your body reduces too, uh, produces too much cortisol, it has a number of negative factors, not the least of which could be dementia itself. And so there again, we have to hammer home the point to caregivers, doggone it all anyway, take care of yourself. And don't come whining to me when you're not feeling so good about different things until you tell me that you're taking care of yourself, because that's really the first step in not only helping you take care of your loved one, but also the first step in helping you take care of yourself so that both of you can live your best lives possible. Absolutely. And realizing that there are resources, there are groups you can join. I will be adding links and resources in the show notes. You are unique and so your hair care should be too. Function of Beauty makes products that are 100% customizable with ingredients designed and formulated to meet your specific goals. Function of Beauty is the world's first fully customizable hair care that creates individually filled shampoos, conditioners, styling, and treatment formulas based on your hair type. I am a sucker for customization. Gotta be honest. I love the idea of something being made specifically for me. Also love the idea of there being a team of scientists formulating my shampoo and conditioner. Now, Function of Beauty was founded by a team of engineers and cosmetic scientists. Each Function of Beauty product is individually designed to be as unique as you are. Yes! Come through, uniqueness. I am unique. So I don't want to buy the shampoo that every other girl has. I want to have my own shampoo. I'm an individual. And Function of Beauty offers over 54 trillion possible formulations. Mind blown. I can't even count past 100. That's a lot. Each one is vegan and cruelty-free with no sulfates or parabens. Hello! Checking all the boxes this Christmas season, this holiday season. You can also go completely silicone-free. Not Silicon Valley, silicone-free. Here's how it works. First of all, you take their hair quiz designed to build your hair profile and select up to five hair goals. I did like split ends, dryness, uh, itchy scalp breakage, and overall just my hair has been relatively dry because of the season. Tis the season for dry hair. Like, does your hair get frizzy in the winter? Mine does. And it also gets oily in the summer. So they have formulations that can be updated as you go to keep your hair on track. Next, you choose your color and your fragrance, or you can go dye or fragrance-free. Sometimes I like to go fragrance-free and then add a couple drops of essential oil. That's just my little DIY info for you. Then you get your freshly filled formula delivered straight to your door and prepared for good hair days ahead. That's right. You're all prepared for good hair days ahead. (laughs) They even offer discounts and benefits when you subscribe. It truly is luxurious. That's what it feels like. When these bottles show up at your door, you feel luxurious. You're like, am I Beyonce? Start giving your hair the personalized care it needs. Go to functionofbeauty.com sharp to take your hair goals quiz and you'll save 20% on your first order when you subscribe. No commitments and you can cancel any time. Don't cancel. You're not going to want to cancel. Go to functionofbeauty.com sharp. That's S-H-A-R-P to let them know you heard about it from our show to get 20% off your first order. That's functionofbeauty.com slash sharp. Take your hair quiz and save 20% on your first order today. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You had a very interesting comparison to being a, a caregiver. You compared it to being Rocky. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I, we, I'm sure Rocky Balboa is, is someone that maybe most of us have seen at one form or another in the movies and so on. But what you're doing is you're slugging away and you're, you're, you're trying to do your best. And then what happens is your loved one has a change in character or something. It's like incoming blows. And then you try and fight harder back and then you get more incoming blows. You're beginning to lose your strength. You're beginning to lose your breath and all of these things are happening. And, oh, please, please stop. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a matter of won't someone please ring the bell so I can go back to my neutral corner and sit down and have someone throw some water in the face to give me some refreshment. But uh, make no mistake about it, if anyone watching is a caregiver, who understand it is really a tough job and, and take it seriously. And if you can do, uh, take it seriously, you're going to have a better life. You're going to be able to experience moments of joy. And gosh, uh, you know, a simple moment of joy with your loved one is such a wonderful experience. And and uh, you can always look forward for many of those, any of those. Yes, I refer to those as moments of lucidity when the essence of the person would come back for a brief moment. And they felt like such gifts. It was such a reminder that while the disease has driven and taken over this person, their vessel, their brain, the love and the essence of who that person is still exists within them. And that we are watching the disease take over the cockpit. Um, You spoke about your children. You're very open about your struggles and you succumbing to your own um, problems when dealing with the disease. And you talked about drinking and you talked about healing and, and reaching out to a support group and finding your own resources. I'm wondering if you'd talk about your children's relationship with the disease and how did that help you? What did you learn from watching your children experience their mother slowly slipping away from day to day? One of, one of the things I found out reaffirming not to be a judge. I found out that everyone handles this disease, this grief a different way. I also found out that I have no right to dictate to anyone how they handle this disease. So I have four children and two girls and two boys and each of them basically handled it a little differently. My one son wanted to remember mom as she was. So he would do anything for me but when it came time to visiting with mom and so forth, he wanted to remember where she was. Uh, with my daughters, it was quite different. They wanted to be there, and my other son was sort of neutral in, in, in it all. And so um, some of the things we do to ourselves, we don't take care of ourselves. You know, we become irrationally irritable. We think therapeutic fibbing is wrong, which it's not. But then we also get involved in these side issues of why doesn't someone do this or why doesn't someone do that and why aren't... So Elaine had a brother and two sisters, and they have to handle it their way. Uh, one one thing I wanted to mention um, that he, I, I wanted the, your 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 viewers, listeners to understand: I did not intend, and I do not intend for this to be a sob story. You know, woe is me. I do want to, and did want to, and and passionately feel. I want to do whatever I can to help caregivers better understand this disease. Because if they can, life can be better. And if they can, if we can, we can get uh, more moments of joy. And, and I would mention that people have written me who said it's not, this book not only helps caregivers for Alzheimer's, but it helps caregivers for all types of diseases and, and all kinds of tough situations. 
And so that makes me feel good. And I think what, what, why this helps people uh, who get as caregivers for all kinds of diseases is the point that we, we, we meet the person where they are and we don't get involved in side judgments and we don't get involved in issues that have no relation, you know, other than the fact that we don't think that's right or wrong and so forth. And, and to try and have the, uh, the caregiver understand that if, if we can keep life simple, it, it makes such a big difference in, in people's lives and in how we can help our, our loved one. I um, am remembering being at my dad's house one night and watching him because we were taking shifts. And this was before we actually inst- installed and still the help of a home caregiver, someone that we paid, which we both know and, and people listening may or may not know be, be based off of what we've already discussed, but caregiving is extremely expensive. This is one of the most expensive diseases that you can be diagnosed with emotionally, physically, and financially. Um, but I was there with my father and there's this experience, this phenomenon that happens because of the way the brain is um, slowly losing its ability to process properly. This experience called sundowning, which I'm sure you're familiar with, patients of Alzheimer's disease lose the capability to know what time of day it is or what day it is. So therefore they're up at odd hours. And I remember watching my dad get up and pace and pace and pace and and just really feeling completely helpless and feeling like I'm exhausted. My sisters are exhausted. We're having these fights. Like you said, everyone reacts so differently and it brings out real ugliness in people because of that feeling of hopelessness. And I just wanted to reiterate what you were saying before, the importance of realizing there are resources, the importance of, even though your ego and your pride may come in the way, but you have to realize that if you're not functioning from a healthy place, it is going to be detrimental to anything else that you're experiencing in your life. And it's going to bleed in every aspect of your life. So I realized that in that moment that we needed help, we needed more help. And this is was a disease that you cannot do alone. Um, there's something that you mentioned and we touched on it a little bit, but I would love to hear you talk about it a little bit more, not to make this a sob story either, but I do believe that this is important for us to break stigmas and also talk about the hard stuff. Why, why does dealing with Alzheimer's sometimes feel shameful? Well, <clears throat> because other people don't understand this disease. And, uh, uh, you know, if, if Elaine and I would go out for dinner with someone, she might reach over and grab someone else's wine glass. Well, how embarrassing is that? Uh, well, no, Elaine, that's not your... Well, no, Elaine, thanks for finding the wine glass and for moving it over because otherwise it would have spilled. Um, she grabbed someone else's coat. She may have uh, uh, issues, bladder issues, and 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 the, the, our loved one is just in the process of trying to figure out where they are, who they are, and and in that in that area of their life, they. They do things just to try and get some kind of a basis of, 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 uh, of, of I was going to say firmness, but some kind of basis of comfort. And they, they, they try all kinds of things. And, and, and what happens is, no, you can't. That's not your wine. No, you can't have another uh, 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 blanket over your shoulders. You already have one. And no, you can't do this. And why did you put the keys in the dishwasher? And why did you... And, and and so we don't want to admit it. And there's the stigma, of course, to mental illness. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, we, we, there's in some areas, uh, there's work in churches and so forth to create a dementia-friendly atmosphere where people can better understand this disease. And, and it's an illness. And, uh, you know, uh, cancer is an illness. And, for some reason, we can better cope with that when someone else has it than we can cope with Alzheimer's when someone else has it. And uh, and I know maybe other people have other better answers than that, but that's what comes into my mind. 
I no. think it's a, a great answer. And, you know, we talked a lot about realizing you need help. You mentioned in your book, realizing the time when you need to pivot and you talk about the pivot in caregiving. Can you talk about that a little bit more? What is the pivot in, in the experience of Alzheimer's? Yes. Well, there's two pivots. There's the one pivot by the caregiver. And then there's another pivot, God willing, uh, in the life of the person who is ill. And a, a pivot, of course, is where, you know, in basketball, I'm, I'm over here and I pivot and I turn over in the other direction. And so for the caregiver, the pivot is finally getting to the point where you let go of this person who once was and understand this is a different person. And because of that, that's whose world you're going to join. And it doesn't happen just boom like that. You can you could be moving a few degrees pivot and, and maybe you go back for, and then maybe a few more. And so it is a, it, it's a very painful period of time. And I want to point out that in this period of time, at, now this is a side note, but it relates to the pivot. I had a friend who retired and he's enjoying his retirement and he has dinner one night, he watches TV and he dies of a massive heart attack. Well, what happens is there's the funeral and people come to uh, the funeral home and express their sympathy, uh, their condolences. And uh, they had the funeral and, and the cemetery and there was closure. There was closure. As horrible as it was, there was closure. This person is now gone and closure. And Alzheimer's caregiver never gets closure, although we see our loved one die just a little bit every day. And what happens in the course of this pivot, we don't realize that. We may know we're maybe depressed. We know that we have anxiety. We know that we're frustrated. We know that we may feel like you're failed, we're failures and not able to handle things. But it took me a while to really confront the fact that I am in the process of grieving. And so when I visit with caregivers, I said, please understand, you are also going through on top of everything else, a grieving process, and we have to confront it. We have to confront that uh, grieving process because it's there. And if we can confront it and cry with it and, 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 and have uh, discussions with our loved ones about it, it's going to make such a big difference. Then the other aspect of the pivot, of the pivot this is the pivots that made by our loved one who is ill. And when you read Elaine's diaries and her notes, you're going to see in there where she is beginning to accept her Alzheimer's and then she's beginning to deny she has Alzheimer's. She begins to tell me how important I am in her life. And then she even ends up writing that she doesn't want to be my wife anymore because I'm telling her too much uh, on what to do. And so our, our loved one is going through through this where they, they, they know they have the disease, they're, they're trying to adjust to it and so forth. And finally, they get to the point where they're in their own world. And that's the pivot of the person who was ill. And I dare say that Elaine was, was more comforted once she made that pivot. And I will tell you that she is very disconcerting and just very uneasy and 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 worried in the process of moving into that point where she got into her own world and so um so anyway uh, let me just tell you a quick story uh, if, if we have time yeah. uh 20 years ago when elaine was first diagnosed with with this alzheimer's could not be cured or delayed or prevented today Alzheimer's still cannot be cured, delayed, or prevented. But I want you to know in Elaine's instant for a moment that there was a time when they thought she was actually getting better. And the reason that they thought she was getting better was because we were having lunch again in the cafeteria at assisted living and we're sitting there and she begins to tell me how intelligent and how good looking I am. Well, right next door to me, right next at the next table, there's a doctor and a nurse. And they said, Elaine Schreiber is getting better because she knows how intelligent and how good looking her husband is. And because of that, they wrote a letter for the New England Medical Journal. And they wrote an article and said, Elaine Schreiber is getting better because she knows her husband is intelligent and good looking. 
they are no dummies at the New England Medical Journal. They wrote back and they said, you have to show three things where someone is getting better. You only showed two things. So there. Well, as happenstance would have it, a little bit of time went by. And uh, uh, we're sitting there having lunch. And by happenstance, the same doctor and the same nurse over there. So now Elaine gets on one of these tangents. How did we meet? How did we meet? How did we, Elaine? I said, when we were 14 years of age, 14 years old, we were in Latin class together. And I fell in love with you right away. And I said, I wanted you for my wife. And I said, I knew that you would make an excellent uh, life partner. And uh, not only that, Elaine, but uh, if any boy got within 50 feet of you, I popped him on the head. She looked at me. She says, you're a bullshitter. So, well, now they have the three things, okay? So if you go to the New England Medical Journal, probably in the March or April issue, you're going to see this article on Elaine Schreiber getting better. That's for sure. So one one other aspect of this, uh, and, you know, we we don't want this to be a sob story. We want the people, uh, our readers, to understand that there are positive good things in this book that will help them. But also one of the unique things is that this this journey takes us to places we never thought we would be. I never thought I would be with you on this day, you know, talking about Alzheimer's. Uh, I never thought I would have lunch with someone who I had lunch with today talking about this disease on how we might do things in the future. And that reminded me of when I, uh, I was elected to the state Senate back in 1962 and I was on the state Senate Education Committee. And so what my responsibility was one day was to go to Washington, D.C. and attend an education committee meeting on the national level and come back. I could do it in the same day. So if you are familiar with the map of, of the United States of America, uh, you will see that you uh, we are east of Washington, D.C., and Detroit also is east of, of Washington, D.C. So anyway, so now it's 5 o'clock in the morning. I'm getting on this 5.30 flight to go to Washington, D.C. to go to my meeting. And as I get on the airplane, there's this very distinguished gentleman in front of me. And he says to the flight attendant, does this plane stop in Detroit? He says, yes, sir, we stop in Detroit. People get off the airplane. People get on. Now we go on to Washington, D.C. He said, I have to get off in Detroit. She said, fine. No, he says, I have to get off. in." She says, yes, sir. No, he says, I'm inclined to fall asleep. If I fall asleep, what's going to happen is I'm going to miss getting off of this airplane. Do you promise you get me? She says, I, he says, are you sure? She says, sir, I promise I will get you off the zero in Detroit. Well, now we land in Washington, D.C. And here this distinguished looking gentleman is getting off of the airplane. And as he gets off of the airplane, he berates the flight attendant like I had never heard anyone berated before. Oh, my gosh. I just never heard. So I. I'm on the, I follow up and I said, oh, I said to the flight attendant, that person was really, really angry. And she said, he's angry. You should have seen the fellow I put off in Detroit. The point of the matter is that this disease takes us to places we never thought we would be. Our loved one leaving us with this disease leaves a gigantic hole, but we are going to be meeting people in the process who are going to be wonderful, helpful people are going to sort of help fill up this hole just a little bit, help ease a little bit of the pain. And we've got to be alert and watchful for those kinds of experiences. And uh, oh my gosh, um, when I look back on these 20 years and and then I think of what other caregivers are going through, my heart goes out to them. And I say, we're with you. You're heroes. I know you're doing your best. The holiday season is here and uh, it makes it particularly strenuous, but by the same token, just know you've got good memories. You've got opportunities to look for and search for moments of joy and even even new kinds of uh, of, of, of places where, where you can maybe be of help to other people as well. I think that's beautiful, and I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, I just have a couple more questions for you. How can how can my listeners and viewers support those who are caring for Alzheimer's patients? I think one of the most important things any friend uh, uh, can do for a caregiver 
is that simply number one, acknowledge what they are going through. I'm going to acknowledge that it is it is something that you can't explain unless you live it. You just can't explain it unless you live it. And so if if we can be acknowledged in 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 understanding that we, we've got a tough row ahead of us, that's going to make all the difference in the world in the beginning. Then the next part is to try and understand this disease, to know that the mind is broken, so to speak, and that we cannot and should not be expecting anything other than this, our loved one trying to find their way. It's almost as if they would be in a complete darkness, just trying to find their way through, hopefully grabbing onto anything that would give them security. So anything that a friend uh, of, of a person who is ill with Alzheimer's, anything that they can do to give them of comfort, whether it's holding their hand, uh, going for a walk, uh, just sitting and, and, and chatting, or even sitting and saying nothing or singing a song. In other words, that personal kind of contact, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be uh, anything other than just a simple, we, we go back again to this, the, the, the poet, you know, I, I will, I may not remember what you did, but I will always remember how you made me feel. And so, so for, for a friend of a caregiver, uh, for a friend of a person with Alzheimer's to understand that feelings become so important and that's joining the world of the person who is ill. So if it's 9.30 in the morning and the person wants a glass of wine at 9.30 in the morning, you don't say no, you can't have, you want red wine or white wine. You want it in a tall glass or in a smaller glass? Do you want to drink it with your friends or should we invite your sister? In other words, redirection and, and therapeutic fibbing and, and, and joining their world. Those are really the good kind of important things that can be done. And then uh, rather than saying, call if you need help, uh, maybe be more direct. I'm going to bring over some chicken casserole tonight. I hope you enjoy it or I'm going to do whatever, whatever. But that's a wonderful question. And, and I think for anyone to understand and maybe particularly the friends and family of, of caregivers and those with Alzheimer's to understand that if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of the disease is worse. And the more we can understand the disease itself, uh, its symptoms and so on, the better off we're, we're going to be for, I, I would even say for the whole world, it's almost, um, this disease is it's not going away in the near future. I, I don't see how we're going to, you know, I would like to be hopeful and say we're going to come up with an answer. And it seems that any of the answers they're coming up with on the short term, the, the, the medicine is going to be so costly, probably prohibitive in cost for a very, very long time. And, and it's not going to happen with a snap of a finger. You're right about that. And I agree about that every time I um, have dug in a little bit to the research and, and even this new drug that has surfaced, I being through the experience like you have, we have our own um, opinion and outlook on it. And speaking of outlook, I guess my last question, even though I, I want to ask you a hundred more, I don't want to take up too much of your time. We might have to have a part two at some point here, Marty. <laughs> um, I guess my last question for you is, what is the greatest lesson dealing with your wife's Alzheimer's has taught you? Simplicity, um, to be non-judgmental. I, I think simplicity. In other words, when when you look and when you strip everything down, you know, and, and you take away the Christmas presents and the Christmas decorations and 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 the birthday presents and the new cars and the old cars and so forth, just the ability to enjoy someone's company for what they are. Uh, I can't tell you the Elaine is, is, is not knowing or aware of what is going on, but to be able to have sat next to her, holding her hand, looking at out the window and, and watching the rustle of the leaves and so forth. It's so, it, it's, I think it, it's simplicity, the, the matter of enjoying life for what it is as it relates to the connection with another life. I think that's probably the biggest lesson. And, and um, I think that I am less judgmental. I think that I am more patient and understanding of children and grandchildren and friends and neighbors and people I don't know. I, I think I am, and I think I am 
as a result of understanding again, just stripping everything away from what life is or isn't. It's that human contact that becomes so that human relationship that becomes so important. I think that's what I, that's what I take away from this. And uh, I guess I also take away from this, the fact that, uh, as I said, you never know what's going to happen. And uh, this disease takes us to strange places, places we never thought we would be. And uh, we've got to look for those as being sort of like real blessings and opportunities to, to share and to, uh, to grow and to teach, to learn. I think that's it. That's beautiful, Marty. I have connected with every single thing you've said. Your book was so beautiful. And like I said, I wish I had had it ahead of time. The holiday season's coming up, folks, and we know that can be a triggering time for anyone in general, but especially those dealing with loved ones who are sick, who have terminal illnesses or illnesses in general. Uh, I highly recommend getting this book. It is a Bible for caregivers and also it is laced with a love story and uh, just a beautiful uh, recollection of something that is so terrible. It's it's honestly, um, I'll remember this book forever and I, and I appreciate you spending time with me and sharing all of your experience and your information and knowledge, what you gained through your beautiful Elaine, both of your Elaines. And I'll put the link for the book as well as some resources, like I said, uh, in the show notes. And Marty, you've been so kind. I appreciate you so much. And I, I wish you the best. I hope you have a great holiday season and yeah. continue to break the stigma. Yeah, well, thank you. And and again, I salute what you do. Um, I, I know what kind of comfort you give people and, and how you're helping them gain a perspective that is going to help make their lives better. So thank you for that. That's really special. Thank you. Thank you, Marty. And I'll talk to you soon. I might need a part two, okay? You call me anytime. <laughs> you take care. Thank you. Are unique and so your hair share <laughs> hair share care. take 22 you are unique so your hair care should be too function of beauty makes products that are 100 customizable with ingredients designed and formulated to meet your specific goals <laughs> so your hair care should be too. Function of Beauty makes products that are 100% customizable with ingredients designed and formulated to meet your specific hair goals. Function of Beauty is the world's first fully customizable hair care that creates individually filled shampoos conditioned... <laughs> the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.